Take your Bibles and turn with me to John, the first chapter. Does anybody get the page number? I forgot to write it down. Yes. 1052? 1053. 1053. Okay, depends on which pew Bible you have, I guess. All right, it's a good thing that was not a sword drill. Some of you may not know what that is, but when I was a child, they had Bible schools, and sometimes before a service, the children would gather and they would do a sword drill. They'd give a text and they'd say, Ready, set, charge. And I was always the last one. Uh, I didn't like sword drills, but so anyhow, I can. We should know our scriptures. We should know the address of the text. I don't, but we should be working on it constantly so that we know God's word. And we're familiar with the books and the sequence and where they fall. Uh, and that's part of the responsibility of the elders in the church is to teach us so that we might know God's word, that we might be familiar, uh, that we might not be secondhand Christians. You know what a secondhand Christian is? It's a person who doesn't know for themselves. They've not studied. They don't own it. It doesn't own them. But it's, it's almost like the word of God is a cliche, and they've got these little phrases that they've heard here and they've heard there, but they're disjointed. The scriptures are a, a, a unity. Ben and I were talking before the service. We're looking at John, and here we have a prologue, an introduction, where he introduces certain themes, and yet through the rest of his book, he will develop those themes. And, and not only John, but he's drawing from the Old Testament, as we'll see. And, and Paul uses some of the same language that you find in Genesis. So the whole of the scripture is one word of God. And so we should cherish it because in it, we find life, life everlasting. All right, John 1, and we'll just read the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A way of a reminder, the text we're looking at this morning is, as we said, a part of the prologue to the gospel written by John. In it, we are introduced to ideas and concepts that will be fleshed out in the rest of the book. Both the signs, wonders, miracles that Jesus performed, and the accompanying teachings recorded here are written for a singularly expressed purpose. John tells his readers that though Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's John's express purpose in writing and recording these particular things. And so as we look through this again this morning, I, I would ask you 
uh, from the beginning, right off the bat, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the anointed, the chosen one, the Messiah, which Israel was looking and that by believing, you may have life, that you have life in his name. In our first sermon, we encountered or considered two concepts. Uh, I'm reviewing briefly here for the sake of those of us who have forgotten, and because we may have new people here this morning, and we welcome you. But first, John uses an odd title for the name of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And then we skip on down, and then it says He. It's talking about a person who was with God. And of course, as we read further, we know that he's talking about Jesus. So why does he pick the Word, or in the Greek, logos, the Word? Why does he use that? Uh, and I would simply, we simply suggested that it echoes the Old Testament use in relationship to God as the word. Second, we consider God's desire to dwell in the midst of a worshiping people, a people who both glorify him and a people who enjoy him. The first question we consider or should have considered after that sermon is, is this, what value do we put, what value do I put on Jesus as the expression of God's person and of God's purposes. For some of you this morning, the answer is, I see by faith, through the work of the Spirit, the glory of God in the face of Jesus. While perhaps others of us may shrug it off in dismissiveness, or worse yet, reject it outright is so much hyperbole and hyperbole and myth. God's purposes for us is that we might dwell with him, that we might see him, that we might know him. The second question along these lines is, we should ask ourselves, how much value do we put in the plate, or put place, or we, how much value do we place on the glory of God? And God as our ultimate satisfaction and our chief enjoyment. The world is full of amusement, full of things that we enjoy, and, and there's not anything wrong. What we said, the, cre the uh, core word there, the main word there, is that he is my chief enjoyment. He is the ultimate. A lot of things are satisfying for a moment, but he is the ultimate person of my satisfaction. Jesus relates, in the third, second sermon, we spoke of his relationship with God the Father, God the Spirit as the triune God. And then we briefly mentioned that in this prologue, we see Jesus as both the creator and the redeemer. You can look back at your bulletin and you'll see those two chapters and it should be highlighted in bold language. He is worthy because he has created all things. And he is worthy because he has redeemed the people unto himself from every kindred tongue. And tribe. Today, again, I would like for us to consider two concepts, their source and thus their power. First, Jesus as life. Of course, we think of Jesus, uh, we think of life as in believers in Reformed circles, we think of both physical life and spiritual life. Second, Jesus as light. And there again, we think of physical life 
flowing from life in the light of reason into reason. And secondly, spiritual light, the flowing from uh, spiritual light into the light of illumination. That seems a little confusing in my mind, even as I, re as I read it. Uh, so what we're saying here is that physically, there is life in our in our bodies this morning, and there's light, and we'll get into that a little bit uh, later in, in our text here, in our sermon. But there is also spiritual life that comes through us from the same source, and from that flows, through the Spirit, illumination concerning spiritual things, uh, and we'll discuss that a little further. The task for us this morning will be to consider contemplate and believe in Jesus as the instrument of our creation and the redeemer of our souls. Our verse again, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Pick up that theme after a brief interlude or a parenthesis dealing with John the Baptist and in verse nine it says, the true light, Jesus is the true light, light which gives light to everyone. In this verse, John ties tightly the realities of light and light to the previous verse where he made all things and there was not anything made except what he made. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. We might simply remind ourselves that there's nothing or there's not anything that exists, including life and light that exists apart from his desire. His power is embodied in his person. But believing here, John, but beginning here, John shows two aspects of the creation that are reflective of the very essence of God. Not just something outside of God, but something that flows from the very person. And Jesus is light. He is light. And not just something, uh, not, these are not things external to him that he, he lays on us. Harkening back to Genesis, you'll remember if we tied, John ties this back to the beginning, uh, starts the same way Genesis does. And we read <clears throat> of life and light, which are seen as flowing from God as he speaks and as he breathes. First in the first chapter, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. Uh, what God wants, what God desires, what God purposes, he brings to pass. Then the Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So we have the creation of light and of Adam, our mankind. Remembering that this is a prologue or introduction, John presents here Jesus as creator. And throughout the rest of the gospel, through his many signs and wonders, he will demonstrate his sovereignty over his creation. You could probably think of examples with me. <clears throat> the first, the turning of water into wine. <clears throat> The taking of a few loaves and fishes and feeding 5,000. Uh, 
The lame and the blind made whole. The ability to walk upon water. The calming by his very command, the wind and the sea. So his disciples look in, in wonderment and they say, what manner of man is this that even the winds obey his voice? And then the ultimate that we long for and we look to if we linger here is the restoration of life from the dead. <clears throat> Yet here we must grasp that God did not create us as bodiless spirits. He created the physical world. And he placed a physical man, a man with a material body in it. And he proclaimed it good. <clears throat> Keeping in mind the original audience who perhaps John put in parenthesis the ministry of John the Baptist as one sent from God to bear witness to the light. John the evangelist makes it clear that uh, John is not that light, but he simply came to bear witness. That Jesus is the true light which gives light to everyone. So we might ask the question, in what sense did does Jesus give, did Jesus give, does Jesus give light to everyone? In Reformed circles, we sometimes talk about common grace given to all men. Mankind, not mankind was created with the ability to think and to understand. You don't have to be a believer to understand natural things. There are plenty of people in the world who reject the Lord Jesus Christ to understand the natural world uh, in its details and peculiarities in a way that I don't. But what is often missing, or <laughs> they reject the Lord Jesus Christ, is the reason for the natural world and as God has created it. Mankind can reason. Mankind has a sense of morality and obligation. Mankind does not simply observe what is, but has had from creation a sense of what ought to be. Mankind can see and appreciate the wonder of God's glorious creation. Some of our beautiful, most beautiful artworks are representations of, of the beauty of creation. Vivian and I had an opportunity to go to Florence a couple of years ago, and I stood in amazement at thinking and seeing this statue that Michelangelo had carved out of a rock, and I call it marble, a rock, or a stone. And there's this giant David with a sling over his shoulder and a stone in his hand, and you could literally see the hairs on his toes. I mean, it was just... I was amazed that a man could make could chisel out something that was so closely resembling a man. And yet as I looked at that, I couldn't help but think, I, I guess it was the Lord who reminded me of a granddaughter I had at home. And I said, you know, she's not standing there on the pedestal. She's running around the house. She can talk, and she can get into mischief. She can do things, and if she grows up, she might be able to take a stone and turn it into a statue. Oh, God's creation in man is the ultimate and the pinnacle. But even the lost world, people who do not recognize God, have created and observed and presented us with some beautiful things. I would say some of the music that I enjoy the most has been composed by authors who are composers who are not believers. And yet it, uh, it soars the spirit uh, and reflects something of God's, I think, to the glory of God, something of his creativeness. 
One has only to observe living creatures to see the wonders, the intricacies, and often the humor of God's creation. Just think of the bumblebee. Can you think of a bumblebee and not smile? Maybe you can. But why <clears throat> we should only observe, we should not only observe, but we should enjoy the gift of our senses. I don't mean that we are sensual in our senses or that we overemphasize our appetites, but God has, he has given us a sense of smell. All you have to do is lose sight or lose the ability to taste your food or lose the ability to, to smell or lose feeling in your hands to appreciate the gift of our senses. God created this world for us to enjoy. And even in its darkness and in its fallen condition, one day he's going to restore it to a pristine and we will be enhanced in our senses to be able to enjoy even greater that which he creates. So we have in Genesis light dispelling the darkness and the formed yet lifeless clay becoming a living creature. Yet you know the story of how man, God's image bearer, fell into death and darkness. God blessed, commissioned, and cautioned his creatures. Though we speak of a covenant of works, certainly all of the aspects of God toward man were gracious. Man was placed in a temple garden with a tree of life at its center. Belief and subsequent obedience promise eternal life. But you know the story, perhaps, dressed as an angel of light and Satan, in parenthesis, a murderer from the beginning, <clears throat> who does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, in parenthesis. Satan, even perhaps dressed as an angel of light, is called, called into question these blessings as a great scam suggesting that they were a ruse of God to withhold the ultimate blessing of mankind, autonomy. We were not created to be autonomous. We were created to be dependent. And whether man recognizes it or acknowledges it or submits to it or not, we are dependent. Whether the boldest and the most braggadocious man who claims to have it all together God can snuff it out just like that. Take the next heartbeat or the next breath. These contrasting themes of death and life and darkness and light not only fill the scriptures but are common to the universal, as common to us as universal symbols. Despite our modern culture's attempt to gloss over the finality and the unnaturalness of physical death, if possible, most people, if not all people, would only choose life. <clears throat> and immortality, and if they had their way, it would be in perpetual youth. Perhaps one of the most misspoken sentiments at a funeral are the words, doesn't he look natural? I don't know how many funerals you've been to, but I've never seen anybody that looked even a glimmer of their former self. There's something about when life passes out of the physical body that you can almost see that it's like it's an empty shell, and in some sense, it is. Along with the many <clears throat> endless advertisements for exercise, herbs, and supplements are listened to with fervent religiosity. So life is, death is not just a part of the cycle of life. Death is unnatural. Death is a curse because of man's rebellion 
against a thrice holy God. Among the many things darkness represents, it represents other than death, is perhaps death is perhaps at the top of the list. Even in our modern culture, many still dress in black at a funeral. Along with death, darkness is often used to convey negativity, evil, sorrow, loneliness, bondage, and depression. The unknown, and for our purposes, the lie. On the other hand, light represents life and positivity, goodness, freedom, joy, hope, and for our purposes, truth. It's borrowed by many hymn writers and uh, writers even in the secular world, but Charles Wesley, I think, puts it poignantly in his hymn about God's amazing grace. Talking of his conversion, he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. His refrain through the many verses is simply, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Wesley and others following Jesus' example had drawn deeply from the well of the Old Testament musicians and prophets. The psalmists present both the darkness, or at least the shadow of darkness, in contrast with light. You're familiar with the 23rd Psalm, where it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus draws from this psalm in John 10, where he associates himself with the Lord, the shepherd of David, by proclaiming, I am the good shepherd. As such, he contrasts himself with the false shepherds. Note verse 10, he says, the thief, false shepherd, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they, talking of a sheep, talking about you and I, I have come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. In Psalm 18 and 28 we read, For it is you who is light, it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. And again in Psalm 36, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and your light do we see light. In your light we do see light. Not only did the poets sing about God as their light, but the prophets pointed to this God coming in the flesh. Just after the temptation, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 9 uh, uh, about uh, after he heals the blind. Excuse me. Okay, before he begins his preaching ministry, that was my point. Before he preaches his, his begins to preach the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 9, and this is what he says. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. Jesus was the life, and in him was 
the light. When Jesus began his public ministry, God, the eternal God, came in the flesh and began to shine forth on a people who had been in darkness, not just his Jewish brethren, but the Gentiles as well. So where does John get these concepts about light and darkness or about light? The short answer is he got them from Jesus. As he declares many times in his life of who he is and his identity with the Father. Time and again, Jesus claims for himself the attributes and identity of God the Father in their holy union. On two occasions, Jesus does not use metaphoric language, but explicitly evokes the name of Jesus. In chapter 8, Jesus states, Before Abraham was born, this is who the Jews were looking to, before Abraham was born, I am. He was. I am. And before Abraham was, I am. You can see the language. Okay. If you think there's ambiguity here, that I'm misinterpreting this text, the Jews understood what he was saying and they sought to stone him. In chapter 18, in the arrest scene, Jesus asked them, who are you seeking? You remember? And then they said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And he, said, he simply said, I am. Now, in all of your translations, it says, I am he. That was the question I was going to ask you then. Is the he there? I can't find it there. He simply says, I am. And you remember the story. It said they fell back and fell to the ground. And, of course, they got back up and asked a second time. And Jesus willingly, the great I am, willingly had his hands bound and followed the head, led him into a trial that he might suffer and bleed and die for you and I. Seven times Jesus uses metaphorically <clears throat> uh, language with the phrase, I am. In relationship to our text, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. We hear echoes of God's name, I am who I am, the self-existent one. As Plato saw it, the uncaused cause, that which is from everlasting to everlasting. In chapter 6, four times he declares, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. In chapter 8, verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. <clears throat> Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is expanding on what John presents in the prologue here. Again, in chapter 9, <clears throat> we're after proclaiming, uh, in chapter 9, <clears throat> he goes on to say, in healing the blind man who was blind from birth, I am the light of the world. And he proved it by healing him. Chapter 10, he proclaims, I am the door. You know, this is a chapter of the Good Shepherd. I am the door. I am the entrance. I am the only entrance into the kingdom, the kingdom of life and light. In chapter 11, he, he proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, he proclaims, I am the way, the truth. We could say the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 15, he proclaims, I am the true vine. It's springtime. My grapevines are beginning to bud. And it'll send out these long shoots. If I go early enough and catch them, then it'll produce more fruit. But those shoots that are full and burgeoning with life 
the leaves that are unfolding will just fall to the ground. They'll shrivel up and die. Jesus is simply saying there is no life, no spiritual life, no productive life apart from me. Brothers and sisters, John's message is, message is good news. It is gospel. As believers, we are thankful that in him is life and light. And he has given it to you and I. He has given not some metaphysical phenomena separate from himself. He has by his spirit borne us from above and given us his life, life eternal. Can you see any association from our text this morning, which, which Paul writes about in chapter 15? I'm going to skip that verse for time's sake. But there he's talking about natural life and he's talking about spiritual life. And then Adam, into whom life was breathed, came natural life. But then through Jesus, we have spiritual life. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was light, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John understands light and darkness in creation. An illumination which comes to everyone generally, generally through conscience and reason. But in verse 5, he speaks not of the individual, but the environment, when he speaks of darkness, into which the light comes. The light comes into a darkened, darkened world. In general, there is no doubt that we live in a dark world filled with lies and deception, and subsequently wars and rumors of wars. But the light of the gospel in Jesus prevails wherever God sends it. The word of God will not return void, but it will accomplish where he purposes it. Paul puts it this way. There's a division. There's always divisions in scriptures. Those who are in and those who are out. I'm sorry. That's those who believe and those who reject. But he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ and Lord, with, our, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, and here he's tying it together, for, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. One quote, maybe in the wrong place, but William Shakespeare said, this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. There is nothing more confining than the prison we don't know we're in. I think I put it a different way to my son. There's no greater deception than self-deception. I can know I'm deceiving someone else, but when I'm deceiving myself, I don't know it. Jesus is the light and the truth. He has come to set us free from sin and darkness. So what is the point? Jesus is light, life and light in creation, but he's also light and life in a redemptive, restorative way. He has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to give life all oh, this morning to realize the wonder of the grace, his grace towards us. 
So what's, what's the challenge? Let me just quote from Deuteronomy. This is hard to hear, but it's in the Word. I called heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life in the length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Here again, from the song that we sang a little earlier, both an invitation and a confession in one phrase that says, come to the light, tis shining for thee. That's, that's the invitation. And then confession. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see the light of the world. The light of my world is Jesus. Our gracious God and Father, again, we confess our frailty and inability. But Lord, we're thankful this morning that this is your word, your proclamation. And there we've muddled through, Lord. We're thankful for the spirit that takes that which seems oblique and makes it clear. So, Lord, we pray that you would do your work this morning. I'll ask you to stand with me again and sing this time from 580. Lead on, O King Eternal. 